Are you in a carb coma? Well, we have more food to discuss, plus a lot of entertainment that'll keep you on the couch. So, hello, Carl. Hi, Lynn. Happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to Christmas season. Yes, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and you enjoyed your bubble. I love my tight little bubble where I still get to do all the things just with my immediate family. Right. We'll talk to our guest, Ann Pollock, in just a second. Around minute 34, we'll talk about the winners of the Joe Awards at the St. Louis International Film Festival. Around minute 44, The Crudes, A New Age. Around minute 48, Happiest Season on Hulu. Around minute 55, Uncle Frank on Amazon. Around one hour, we'll talk Super Intelligence on HBO Max. Hillbilly Elegy, Lynn will crap on that again at one hour and five minutes. Around one hour and six minutes, the John Belushi and Frank Zappa documentaries on Showtime. And then around one hour and 10 minutes, what's going on in the St. Louis area for Christmas time? We have a guest. We do. We have a special guest, Ann Lemons Pollock, longtime food writer and a local theater critic in the St. Louis theater circle with me. And uh, she has written another book and we're gonna talk about it. Hi, Ann. Good, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Nice to be here. Hello. <laughs> I like your, your um, introduction. I like your dedication in this new book, Iconic Restaurants of St. Louis to all the ones I've fed before. <laughs> I enjoy that. I almost did a song parody on that many years ago. Oh, well, I would I would imagine. I uh, do have your other book about uh, the long gone restaurants, which I just love so much, like Racino's and Lettuce Leaf. And I encourage people that if you didn't read that, you need to get that. Carl, this is about the iconic, famous eateries in our gateway city it's got everything from uh Car cardwell's you've got a you've got um a recipe for cardwell's barbecue chicken salad in here and uh sydney street cafe to velvet freeze and ted drews Ooh, velvet freeze i loved i used to go to velvet freeze the one on hampton and delore i would go there as a child and they had uh not only uh, ice cream, but they had like the very first uh, Space Invaders video game machine. So I would play Space Invaders there. You must have been in heaven. I loved it. And I could ride my bike there. And my friends lived on Delore. I lived in Itasca. We could all meet there. And then we would go to Booter Library, which has now moved down the street. Is now It's now a record exchange. And so I know that area back and forth. Now, uh, that Velvet Freeze is a music uh, store. It's, it, I think the guy teaches guitar. And then next to that is a, uh, it's a bar. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Did you, were you near the Peaches? Cause I used to go stand in line at the Peaches. It was Peaches. Then it was Sound Warehouse. Then it finally died before it turned into a Chick-fil-A. It, it, the last incarnation of Peaches was F-Y-E. And Peaches, I still have a Peaches crate, and I still have a Sound Warehouse singles crate. That's how old those things are. I have to tell you that last Christmas, I got my son a, a Peaches t-shirt. Nice. But that building, before it was a Peaches, was a national food store. Yes, that's true. Aha. Uh -huh. 
but that was before that was before my time. Yeah, it wasn't before mine. <laughs> but then, but that where that Lindell Bank was, that was a bowling alley. So there was a bowling alley, a national, and then at Hampton Village, you had the Schnooks, which all they did was move from the center to the side. Correct. And please let us not forget the long gone, iconically, uh, architecturally iconic White Castle. On the on corner. The, I guess that's the southwest corner there. Yeah. And it was the it was the southwest corner of Hampton and Chippewa. Then it turned into a photo mat and now it has turned into parking because that target is now uh, has underground parking. I remember that was my target. That has been my target my entire life. And I know one of the first everything. that one was of one the of the first targets. Wow, I did not know that. But when it when they closed it down for six months to make underground parking, and then they just resurfaced the parking lot like two weeks ago. So I guess you know they re they did raided the parking because now more people are uh, getting drop off stuff. So right, the Instacart. Yeah, which and is shit. That well, I live um, and Carl and I both live in St. Louis Hills, and uh, when I drive Soha. There's a lot of restaurants now. Yes, very true, very true. And, and so we uh, we are able to do curbside pickup and delivery of a number of places in our immediate area, which were not there before. But uh, tell us about some of the some of the neighborhood places that you love writing about in this book. Well, I loved writing about just about all of these places. This is. This is this both books have just been so much fun to research. Um, so I do have the great and the grand. I have Tony's in here, but I also started looking at 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 neighborhoody places and places that started out neighborhoody and grew and grew. Um, in terms of neighborhoody, to me, kind of kind of the ultimate thing that's turned into an icon is Carl's Drive-In yeah. on Manchester. I drove by it the other day and I told my daughter, hey, look, there's my drive-in. It's not, you, can I, I, a short sidebar, for many years, Casey, when I was on the morning show, we did a Greasy Spoon tour and every Friday we would go to a different Greasy Spoon and Carl's Drive-In would never let us broadcast from there. I'm like, and I said, but my name's Carl. And they said, if you guys come here, we will not be able to do it because they only have what seven tables or seven oh, chairs. Yeah. And then now you should see it. Cause you know, cause of the situation, I think it's pretty much, you, you can't go on. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's the iconic, um, what cracks me up is when you go in there and wait and it's the same ladies <laughs> that have been there forever Yep. And you got to get a root beer because they've got the barrel and the and the chilled mugs, which and is why we wanted to go there and broadcast from there and give them. Mostly, it was just paying homage to what they were doing, and they're like, "You you can't disrupt our business that way." That's just the way that they are. Well, Frank was Frank knew what he did well, and and you know, as much as I believe in the media, the fact is that setting up how many people two maybe. Yeah. Two, and a microphone, you're not, it's not like you're going to be there for 20 minutes and leave. And Frank's, Frank's, uh, Frank had a good customer base. 
and he wanted to take care of them. And by the way, he's quite the restaurant geek himself. Um, well, um, he, well, he's part of the Route 66 lore, too. Well, of course. By the way, that root beer is the original IBC recipe. Oh. IBC began in St. Louis. And um, there's ties but, uh, with, through IBC between uh, Carl's and... Um, um uh thing uh, you know senior moment here uh chuckaburger chuckaburger was uh also an offshoot of the ibc group the guy that the guy that started ibc who had a root beer stand in forest park for a while um gave, sold the recipe to the original carl's and um, also uh, there was a connection with Chuckaburger when Chuckaburger started. And I do have the ch have Chuckaburger in the book as well. Well, those places aren't like really near each other. That's weird. Well, but Chuckaburger was all over. It was like- yeah, they, had more, they had more than one. They just keep the one on St. Charles Rock Road now, but they did right. have more. Okay. When I was a kid, I remember. Oh yeah. Well, we had we had the A and W in uh, East Side because I grew up in Belva. We had the A and W. Oh yeah, well, well A and W was national. Yeah, and A and W that that was a special treat because I when I was a kid in the seventies and eighties to go to an A and W there was one in South County. I think there was one in West County because it wasn't it wasn't anywhere. You know, I just told you about my Easy. South City bubble. Yeah. There wasn't anywhere you had to go. It was a des travel destination. Right, and the the one in the area that was the longest was the Edwardsville one because it was on Route 66, and so they kept it forever. Because I remember my kids playing little league, and you know travel, and it was still there. So, but yeah, when I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning, probably like you, Anne. And so to get a frosted mug of root beer was a huge deal. Oh yeah, I think always had the feeling that A and W, at least in the in the first decades of the franchise concentrated more on small towns um it was a big deal when one came to flat river for example mm -hmm. uh no inside dining car hops only and their hamburgers came with slaw on them when you asked for a plain hamburger there was oh there was very southern <laughs> very southern well a couple of the um, restaurants here mean special meaning to me because growing up in Belleville, when we would come over to St. Louis and shop at Famous Bar and Sticks, Beer and Fuller, chances are you went to Pope's Cafeteria or Hollings Cafeteria. Miss Hollings. Well, that's interesting because we always went to the Forum. Yes, yes. And the Forum too. I think I, yeah, I think uh, that or else the tea room at Famous Bar for the French onion soup. Well, that was like special. Yeah, that was quite elegant. Thank you. Yes, that was very special, like a birthday, like my mom took me for my birthday. I had Hullings in the first book. And in this book, uh, I have both Pope's and the Forum. And the Forum sort of breaks one of my rules, which is no chain. Mm. People didn't realize that the Forum cafeterias were a chain. I didn't either. It began in Kansas City. And um, it's interesting, the guy that started it liked architecture. And the, the forum across from Famous Bar 
was was great art deco it was not out the out the wazoo type art deco but you think about all that black and white interior and those those chrome aluminum uh chairs and things like that one of his cafeterias was in an old recycled vintage movie palace oh wow yeah 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 um, I uh, uh, we we normally went to the forum. Although my great aunt Mary, who was like many people in my family a teacher, always referred popes. She thought it was just a little bit nicer. <laughs> and now I never quite ascertained what made it a little bit nicer. But um, uh, I was very fond of the forum and the old ads for the forum that talk about it being cheaper to eat at the forum than to uh, than to eat at home because there were no leftovers to worry about and no wastage and so on and so forth. And during the war, they encouraged people to come downtown, have breakfast and then go to work because everybody was using public transit. There was gasoline rationing and so on and so forth. Um, and it's easy to imagine a bunch of people having breakfast and reading the old Globe Democrat, and <laughs> and um, um, going through the sports section, and then uh, trotting off to work, wearing fedoras and ties and carefully shined shoes. That's right. And downtown, I mean, downtown was a whole new world to me when I would get off the bus at at the where they sold the flowers, the wholesale flowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we would and Wall even Woolworths remember the red pistachios they dyed the pistachios red I mean it was just like this whole new world just walking downtown and seeing everything and one of the other landmarks which I didn't know about till I was at the St Louis Globe Democrat was Beffa's and now Beffa's is back Beffa's is the only restaurant that is in both books. I wrote about it in Iconic because I we it had closed. And most people, Beffa's is an underground restaurant in, in the modern sense of the world. Word, you had to know where it was. There were no signs. And of course, in those days, there were no posted prices. And the, the urban legend was that they charged you pretty much you know, on a whim, whatever they thought the traffic would bear. And I've never asked the Beffas about that or not, but Beffas reopened um, about two or three weeks before the shutdown began. But they're back at it. Um, They have music on the parking lot just south of the building on Olive uh, for brunch on Saturdays. And they're doing a lot of carry out. And yes, they have prices. So we're glad that it's back. The food is good. Well, I saw that and I thought, oh my God, that poor guy. Because he said, well, I want to keep it open for the people because we hired these people and I want to keep them in business. And so that's good. You know, um, I just think a lot of places have a reputation and it's word of mouth. Like you have to, because now there's so many choices to go to. But I remember when a lot of these places were little hole in the walls, like Blueberry Hill was a hole in the wall chemo's out on North Grand, you would go and they had the checkered tablecloths and they would do the pasta dishes at your table. They'd, they'd toss it and it was very old school spaghetti house. Yep. 
And then they started doing the gourmet nights. And the gourmet nights, um, there's a quote in there from, I guess it's the grandson of the founders saying, once the stadium, once the old Bush Stadium, that is to say Bush Stadium One or Sportsman's Park, once it moved downtown, they realized that they didn't have the same amount of traffic in the area. And um, Mrs. Kemal, Dora said, people are not gonna come up here for an ordinary restaurant. So they began doing fixed price, fancy evenings, at first focused on the cuisine of just one area of Italy. And it was very good. There were a number of serious eaters that were employed by the Big Red, the football cardinals. And uh, my late husband, Joe Pollock, was the PR guy for the Big Red for many years before he, before, uh, he left and, and took a job at the Post-Dispatch. And um, he has great tales of, of serious eaters from the Big Red uh, going in a group to the gourmet nights. And um, uh, it's a good thing it was not all you can eat. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can imagine. And then some legendary chefs are in here. Uh, when I was food editor at the St. Louis Globe Democrat in 1985, they flew me to Kansas City, which, you know, back in the day. And I, I interviewed Bill Cardwell when he was in charge of uh, the, the Robinson, the GW yep. Robinson. Um, yep. He was developing the menu at Houlihan's. And Bill Fedora's. Yeah. And so he was, he was showing me all this stuff, you know, and then he came to St. Louis and started his own place and, and the rest is history. Yeah. The rest is history. So I enjoy seeing how people develop their uh, restaurants. And um, one of my favorite places, cause I worked at Umzolt was goody, goody diner. And what's the latest on them? The latest on them is, is not good. Um, uh, as many people know, Goody burned. And there was a lot of discussion about they were going to just remodel it, the building was standing. And that didn't happen. And I guess it was about two months ago now, the building has been torn down. Oh. Uh, I have made repeated attempts to reach the new owners after Richard Connolly and his wife sold it. Uh, Connolly has no news on it. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. They've been very close-mouthed, and um, I am not, unfortunately, optimistic. Goody was very much one, one of a kind. The people watching were great. The, uh, the, the poetry-wrapping Mater D that was there was wonderful. Um, I was going there in, in the late 60s when it was still quiet and not well known. But in many ways, Goody was just um, a, the platonic idea of a neighborhood restaurant in terms of real food and a wonderful mixture of people like the late and much mourned Laclede town was. So, I mean, you got people from all walks of life you got politicians, you got, you got visiting important people like Al Gore when he was running for president and so on and so forth. So 
So yeah, goodie is wonderful. Um, you were talking about restaurants downtown. Cafe Natasha on South Grand began as a hole in the wall in the Paul, in the Paul Brown building, just serving breakfast and lunch. And um, uh, Natasha, <laughs> Natasha was actually, I think maybe the the restaurant which was not uh which was not called cafe natasha then it was before her mom was pregnant with natasha and she grew natasha grew up in her parents restaurant which sort of metastasized to the u city loop and then eventually left downtown and they ran the loop location with downtown and then they added the South Grand location and now everybody is down there. But her parents were Iranian refugees and her dad, her dad in particular was so meticulous with his food and the flavor and the reproducible qualities of it. It has to taste, he would say. <laughs> Just a lovely man. Well, and I wanted to, for 20 years, from when I was 20 years old until I was 40, my friends and I, and yes, I'm saying this, I went to this place underage, in Maplewood, every Thursday night, my friends and I from high school would go to Cousin Hugo's, and that has now closed after 82 years, and they, try, they tried during uh, the pandemic to stay open and do curbside, but a neighborhood bar like that just can't you know, and their food was great. I, there's, there was an off the menu special called the Carl the Intern special, which was chicken wings, just drummies, and trashed fries. Which they, the reason they didn't have it on the menu is because the trash fries that they only made for me were ruining their fryers. So, <laughs> so I went there every, almost every out of out of fifty two weeks, I was probably there forty five Thursdays a year. And I loved going and my friends and I, we were all upset when it closed down, but there are many restaurants that are, and pubs and bars that are in that same boat. And you, uh, Tommy Bond has said he's not going to reopen after everything happens. So you don't know what's going to happen with these iconic and neighborhood places. And it's just, it, it's a weird postscript to your book that you, you had no idea that any of these things are going to be happening. And if any of the restaurants that were open are not open anymore. Well, I sent the manuscript off the afternoon of the last night, all the restaurants were open in March. Oh, wow. The only place in the book right now, by last count that has gone down permanently and publicly is Cusinelli's on Lime Ferry. Yeah. But other than that, so far, we've been pretty lucky. But, um, you know, when this began, um, uh, there are people in the industry that were talking about um, a 60% mortality rate among restaurants. And I don't, I don't know when it gets done, if it's going to be that high or not. People, people are trying hard to keep their businesses open, to keep their employees going, but we know that, that there are just an awful lot of people out there who've lost their job. I hope that one of the things this does is give people a greater appreciation for their restaurants and for the people that work at them. 
when Joe and I used to take the dog and pony show on the road and talk to groups, inevitably there were questions about tipping, um, which usually began with, is it really mandatory to tip 15% now? <laughs> um, it should have been 20. Well, you know, I got to, you know, my standard spiel is these people work hard. Hardly any of them, unless they're working for a casino or a big chain, have health care insurance, have paid holidays, <clears throat> have vacation time, um, their feet hurt. It's a hard way to make a living. It is. And I think anybody that's been in the service industry, they once you are, you are, then you tip all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And indeed, if you cannot afford to tip, uh, then don't go. Uh, <laughs> and people who say, well, it's a bad system and I don't want to support the system. You don't have to support the system. Go to go to fast food restaurants. But do you not want to support the people who make their living that way? And now more than ever, I find myself tipping I've always tried to be a good tipper and don't get me started on the stereotype about women and tipping. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but, but I've really tried, I've really tried to, to step it up more and more. I have not, I have done dine in exactly once since all this began at when I had the first, um, the f inaugural event for the book. I took myself to the bar at Louis, socially distanced, in honor in honor of the old King Louis on Choteau. Which and, was awesome. Which yeah. was, oh, one of St. Louis's great restaurants. Went and to two sat weddings. At the bar and um, had a bite to eat and a glass of wine and <laughs> talked to Matt McGuire, whose father, as long as we're talking media, whose father, of course, was John McGuire of the Post-Dispatch. The, Just a great guy. A great guy and a, and a superb features writer. Yeah. And, and with an Irish gift of telling stories, I would add. Quite um, the raconteur. Oh, yes, indeed, indeed. But, but when I've gotten takeout from my neighborhood restaurants or whatever, and I will not use services like DoorDash, they, yeah. really, they really drain restaurants financially um find a place that delivers go pick it up yourself um but i i really try to tip as though i were sitting at a table and then some yes um, you just you're not eating out as much that that food you're buying to cook it at home or the frozen entrees from trader joe's uh aren't as expensive as your restaurant stuff um unless you're just really bust be good to these people they try so hard and it's it's in such danger restaurants there's there's a line i try to use if i'm signing books unless i'm signing 20 at a time or something if kitchens are the heart of a home then restaurants are the heart of a city oh and i, and I really believe that's true that's really a good, uh, that's good. That's really a good phrase. I know I used to have this rule when the kids were little and we would go on road trips. We are not eating at a chain. Mm. 
we are eating at a local place and we discovered so many wonderful little hole in the walls. And I just think it's just neighborhood joints. You just got to support them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And of course it's a lot easier to do that now than it was. I mean, when I was, we were traveling when I was a kid, there were no chains. Uh, I mean, I think regional. I, think I, I remember Howard Johnson's, but that was fancy food. We didn't go to Howard Johnson. <laughs> um, uh, not until I was in high school did we ever go to a Howard Johnson's. But but uh, people like uh, Jane and Michael Stern and their road food books and so on, and now websites have made it a lot easier to find the neighborhoody spots. Um, between that and Google Maps, it's it's really great to be able to to go someplace for breakfast and have have a world beyond egg McMuffins. There's a time and a place for the egg Macs, but you know, give me give me. There's a little chain in around West Virginia called Tudor's Biscuit City. How could you resist a place with a name like that? Biscuits and gravy. All You're right. Yeah. And uh, Guy, Guy Fieri's uh, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. Yes. Places, things like that. Things well, like you were talking earlier about your late husband, Joe Pollock, and they have named an award after him at Sliff. And Lynn and I were on the panel for that. Yeah, before we, we're going to talk about that, but before we do, where's your book available? Because I know I'm going to be getting it for people for Christmas. So where can you find it? Well, it can be found at local bookstores. Hey! To say places like Left Bank, The Novel Neighbor, the Webster, Webster Groves Bookstore. Uh, the, the Barnes & Noble has it on their website, but the last time I looked, it's not in the local stores yet. They're slower to shelve books like this. If I were, um, uh, if if I were some hotshot, big time, big name author, it would be out the day of release. But you're not going to find it there. And Lynn, call me about the books. We can get this done. Hey, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's and yeah, I that's mean, right. And you'll get it. You'll get autograph. You'll get autographed copies. That's true. Um, yes, I picked it up at a Left Bank, and what they do is it's curbside delivery. So you order it, and then when you go pick it up, you call them, and they bring it out and in a bag and put it on a little table right in front of the store, and you pick it up. Nice. I've been getting books from Left Bank throughout the quarantine period that way. Um, between the last of the Hillary Mantel series and um, the cookbook from the Washington Post's um, guy who wrote a book cookbook called Cool Beans, and a history of the Battle of Athens, which some of my newly discovered biological kinfolk were in. Oh, wow. How so, wonderful. Well, and you could, you could fill the whole show, but I remember I first met you when you would accompany Joe to films, being in, like Carl and I were in the St. Louis Film Critics Association, and we always enjoyed our year-end award discussion because joe would bring all these bottles of wine <laughs> yes he did that he would and he didn't need to uh you know gratiate himself to us he just did it because he wanted to do it because some somebody like corcoran would bring a pizza somebody else would like bring a whole bunch of white castles joe brought wine and classed up the joint 
Well, Joe also brought wine because it would it arrived at the house in amazing quantities. <laughs> and there there were just times when staggering out of the house with a case of 12 bottles of wine was like, oh, my God, at least we got that much out of here. <laughs> well, so, we, were, we, we were always wondering, well, are, are these Joe's favorites? Is he splurging with us or is he just getting it out of the house? It's probably a little of both. He was getting it out of the house and some of the stuff that arrived when Joe was writing about wine was the good stuff. And some of it was middle of the road. You never got the equivalent of three buck chuck because <laughs> they didn't bother to pay for shipping to get wine writers to write about it. No, they didn't so, need to. No. Right. Well, Joe was a legendary figure because I just, uh, what I just loved about him was he wrote about film, he wrote about theater, and he wrote about food. And those are my three favorite <laughs> things to write <laughs> So I do have your, uh, I should have gotten it off my bookshelf. Um, the last uh, Eat, the, the last St. Louis Eats book that, that you both did. Oh yes, the one with the caricature of Joe on the cover. Yes. Where yeah. the napkin tied around his neck looks like little angel wings. <laughs> it was that, and he, he died in 2012, and it was very it was very sad. And um, I admire you for carrying the torch, and because your your writing in St. Louis Magazine, I love to read those articles. You started doing a lot of dives into you know old places like the famous bar tea room and and uh lettuce leaf i went there all the time when i was a you know young woman just so did so did i and credit to george mayhe for getting me started on that beat he said you have too many stories we need to capture them mm -hmm. So. Yes, and and you do. I mean, anybody you should sign. Also, you can sign up for St. Louis Magazine. Uh, they will just send you the food articles because I'm on that list where yeah. they just yeah. send you a the newsletter. Yeah, the dining options. Yes, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So when uh, after Joe died, uh, St. Louis film critics, we were discussing ways to honor him. And uh, everybody had sorts of things. And we had this award at St. Louis uh, International Film Festival called Under the Radar. And they would give our two jury panels for documentary and for narrative, a bunch of films that they thought were important enough to spotlight. And so it seemed fitting to name them after Joe and because he had such a passion for the power of film and what film could do. And I remember him promoting certain films that I had never heard of and I would pay attention to because Joe said so. And so we did that and the, and the Cinema St. Louis was fine with it. And then Joe Williams died tragically in 2015, the summer. And so I asked the, the board, the St. Louis Film Critics Board, I said, hey, how about if we, uh, keep the Joe Pollock narrative, but we named the doc for Joe. And so we agreed and Cinema St. Louis agreed and I announced it at the memorial service. And uh, then we also got permission to put those plaques at the Tivoli lobby. So we have, we have Joe Pollock and Joe Williams on these plaques in the Tivoli lobby that we dedicated finally. And 
every year I like that we're, we, we call them the Joe Awards. And I try to think of their spirit when we're handing, you know, when we're considering these movies to honor Joe and to honor um, Joe. both Joes. Both Joes. <laughs> and Lynn, you did a fine job on Zoom the other night. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, we picked, Carl and I were on the Joe Williams documentary one, and we picked Nine to Five, the story of a movement. It's about the labor movement, about the women office workers in the 70s and how they fought for equal pay, better pay, better opportunities, and the sexual harassment. It's a wonderful movie. And it's by the same people who did American Factory that won the Oscar last year. Oh, wow. It's not technically out yet. I don't think, I mean, it will open, but I don't think they've made a splash for it. But the four, they, they inspired the movie Nine to Five. Yes. And that, that as Phil Donahue said, the movement came first, then the movie. And the song. right, and the movie's going to be forty years old in December, so maybe they'll bring it out then. I'm not sure, but the Joe Pollock Award is really exciting this year because it's a Korean film called Beasts Clawing at Straws, and apparently it's fantastic. It comes out video on demand December fifteenth, so we'll be able to promote it. But everybody, it won the audience award at SLIF too. Chris Clark said, everybody just loves it. Apparently it's got these twists mm -hmm. and, and it just keeps you going. So that is the Joe Pollock award winner this year, Beast Clawing at Straws. Korea apparently is put, South Korea is apparently putting out some really interesting films these days. Yes. I just saw Minari. And I can't talk about it yet, but it's really fabulous. And it's also very different from Parasite. I'm seeing that on Tuesday. And Jong-Ho, Boon Jong-Ho, I just get that. I know it's Bong Their last Boon. names are their first names and vice versa. Right. Uh, got much acclaim for Parasite, deservedly so. And then his reissued film, from 17 years ago, Memories of Murder is out because they caught the real serial killer last year. So they resurrected that. And then Minari won both the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And then this Beast Cloying of Straws is just getting huge response. So, so that's good. And then we know um, that and saw the movie that is going to be debuting on Channel 9 on Monday night, America's Last Little Italy, The Hill. It's uh, They bought it for their pledge drive. So if you notice a whole bunch of weird programming on Channel 9, uh, that is why, because they're in pledge mode. And so Monday, the movie that we've talked about a lot over the last seven months, America's Last Little Italy, the Hill is going to be on PBS Channel 9, the 9 Network, Monday night at 7 o'clock. Now, I saw a different version of this film back in the spring at the St. Louis uh, Filmmaker Showcase. They made a better version of it that they had at St. Louis International Film Festival. And I'm guessing that since it, they've only blocked out an hour and a half and it is a 70-minute film, 
I think it is going to be an even more edited version of this film because they need to get in their pledge breaks. And I don't think 20 minutes is enough. I think that they will, they will have a truncated version of this film and they'll probably sell it for you on channel nine so you can support public television. But they also have the DVD available on their Facebook page. Okay. So you can get it. And then it's also going to be on Amazon soon, but it's a rental or purchase. It's not a, uh, it's not, it's a not on Amazon prime. Oh yeah. It's not a free yet. Yeah. But Anne, did you get to see the film be before it, uh, when it was, at I either got, I, I i got a chance to see it um when right before it was in the film festival and i admit that i had hoped for more discussion of restaurants and restaurant people there's a lovely scene in there with somebody talking about walking to mass on sunday at saint ambrose and smelling the gravy as mm -hmm. the red sauce, that's the sauce going down the street, you know, every, everybody's Nana cooking, cooking her gravy. Uh, and that's, that's pretty charming, but it's hard to, given the hill, it would be hard to focus on just one restaurant. And especially uh, the, the length of time that they were, they were going from the beginnings of the hill till now. And how many restaurants have been on the hill? And there are some that are still there, but you probably couldn't name them all within 70 minutes. Well, uh, you could name them, but you certainly couldn't give many details. I mean, what can you say about, um, um, about uh, a restaurant, for example, who during World War II provided breakfast to POWs, Italian POWs who were working at a POW camp in North St. Louis. How many people knew we had a POW camp in North St. Louis for that? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. 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 I mean, oh, yeah. It's just, it's fast. It's fascinating. Sure. Yeah. And, and you do have some of the iconic ones in your book. You have Charlie Gito's and uh, Joya's Deli. And um, there's some other ones. I'm just blanking right now. Then, of course, the uh, legendary Tony's, which is Vince Bomarito. I used to see him eating lunch at Adriana's on Saturday. Yes. Was... Vince, Vince enjoyed his lunches out in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could do stories on that too, but but time is getting a little short. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd rather be across the street at Guido's, but I will say it's interesting who they chose to speak for the film. Kim Tucci, who you know he had just he talked. They must have talked to him right before he passed away. But Kim Tucci never had a restaurant on the hill. <laughs> he never had a restaurant on the hill. I mean, he did have that commissary that was right adjacent to the hill but pasta house was never on the hill it was interesting i mean he's a great st louis restaurateur and he you know is italian and people know who he is but if you're doing if you're being a st louis stickler like we all are he's not really associated with the hill he may have been articulating things that they wanted to have said would be my guess true Right. And then the pasta house was a huge success back in the day in the early 70s when it first came out. And and uh, remember the one that was at Plaza Frontenac? It was just yes. 
And, and, you know, it was just a huge thing. And still, I mean, how many people in St. Louis have that salad recipe? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, know, so that's the thing. But uh, you guys are making me hungry. We got to get to the, we got to get to the movie. And I just wanted to say that the Hill documentary broke records at the St. Louis uh, showcase in the summer. But for the film festival, it was the number two film. Really? And I don't know what number one was, but it was the number two film at the film festival. So that's how popular it is. Well, let's talk about the new release. Uh, there is only one new release in theaters this week, and it is a sequel, The Crudes, A New Age. With I'm going to uh, be a Debbie Downer because I did not care for this. Well, I didn't see it. And I, I want to say... We were talking about this in our little text string and Max said, Carl liked it. And I, well, I, I didn't necessarily like it. I, I thought that the characters, the way they were drawn and that matched to their voice characters were, that was an amazing bit of casting. I don't know if they cast first or they did the drawing and got the voice actors to be, because that, that daughter looks exactly like Emma Stone. And that even though the giant Hulk of a man that is Nicolas Cage. So the casting was perfect for the Croods. And now, so this is part two of the Croods because, you know, at the end of the Croods, they went to a new land because, you know, Earth going crazy stuff. <laughs> well, this, the, the original movie was 2013, DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. And they decided seven and a half years later to do this sequel. I don't know what it is about animated movies now, and I'm not putting Pixar or uh, some other ones in this, but they're very loud and they're very fast and they're so busy. They are so overstuffed with colors. This looks like a Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper exploded. <laughs> and it's just so, it's, it's hard to follow. And I'm a big fan of the Flintstones as much as anybody. So the one thing about the Flintstones was it had charm and it was, funny. it was a rip off of the honeymooners. It I know, it but it was charm. It, it was stolen 100%. I know, but it was funny. And maybe I'm, you know, looking at it through a haze of the sixties, but this one, these characters, there's, they're not really engaging. They put up in this one, they have, because the, uh, the Bettermans, the rival family yeah. are more evolved. Yeah, because so they're, they're better men. Involved. And uh, so we have a lot of man cave jokes. We have man buns. We have manscaping. It gets a little tedious with uh, the way they're just forced the humor to show the difference between the Neanderthal crudes and then the more evolved bettermans. And well, I think they chose well with Leslie Mann as the wife and Kelly Marie Tran as the daughter, but, and Peter Dinklage has an amazing voice, but everything I said about the first one, and I, I know that's kind of silly, but does, does his voice lend himself to a betterman? Because he always oh. has that air of being amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, he's condescending in this. What they <laughs> want to do is they want to get their daughter, Kelly Marie Tran hooked up with Ryan Reynolds, who plays Guy. Right. He was, but he's, he's the boyfriend of Emma boyfriend Emma Stone. Of, Emma Stone so that's the whole thing and it's one of those 
keeping up with the Joneses and it's also the rivals like, uh, you know, any kind of sitcom with the neighbors. And it's just, to me, it's not very original. And also uh, for little kids, they have a lot of slapstick, which is cute. It's called the Croods. Of course, they're slapstick. I mean, that was the thing about the first one. They, the whole thing about them taking a selfie was them having a uh, slab of stone smacking up against them with paint on it. So it, it made a cave drawing that was a selfie. It was, you know, which is like fun. That. You know, it's fun, like the cave drawings. But I just think this is really stretching it. And the voice work is fine. Do not get me wrong. Everybody that's doing a voice is good. It's fine, but I just think the story is just bleh. Well, also, it's it's also rare for uh, a cast with that like that for everyone to reprise their roles, and I'm glad that they are at least keeping the continuity with that. Yeah, and, well, and it was supposed it, to be Kat Dennings was supposed to be the daughter, and then uh, Kelly Marie Tran took over her role. Yeah, well, it made two point seven million over the holiday weekend. Which is, you know, in, in that's theaters, probably good. And theaters, because, you know, people aren't necessarily going out to theaters. So it will be a huge hit, but it's no, it's no finesse. I'm, you know, we're not talking uh, any kind of. Uh, well, speaking of a story yeah. that kind of goes nowhere, let's talk about Hulu's wonderful little holiday movie called happiest season oh my goodness <laughs> lynn hates this movie so much i don't okay. i don't like i don't like the choices that they made i i think it is a waste of an otherwise excellent cast it is it has this really lovely cast it has a christmas setting you know they're going for the hallmark movie audience you know hulu amazon netflix are trying to cash in on the uh the juggernaut that is the hallmark christmas movie Mm -hmm. I have a guy friend who watches two Hallmark Christmas movies a day. Wow. I, and this guy is really cynical. And I would never, ever guess that. But that's what he does. And then a lot of my friends say they go to bed watching because of the news of the past couple months that they, you know, turn on the Hallmark movie channel and that's how they go to sleep because it's just comforting. So Hulu decides that they're going to kind of remake Family Stone as a lesbian romance. Yeah. And that is Mackenzie Davis and Kristen Stewart. So the Terminator versus the Vampire Girl as a couple. And uh, it's really a lame plot. The plot is just pathetic, I thought. It's this perfect family headed by Vince. Victor Garber, who happens Mary, to be a homosexual in real life, and Mary Mary Steenburgen, who's married they, to Ted Danson, and they want to have he, everything perfect. They have three daughters. He's running and, for mayor, by the way. Right, and so Mackenzie Davis is their daughter Harper, who is a newspaper woman. She's the middle daughter, and she's been living with this woman Abby for over a year. But her family doesn't know she's gay. Kristen so, Stewart. And she has lied to her about that. Hey, one of the most uncomfortable moments in our relationship is when I had to come out to my parents. That was a lie. She did not come out to her parents. And so not only do they know that she's living with someone, they don't even know she's gay. 
No, so she wants to be in the closet when they go for Christmas, and they're on the way there when she breaks the news. So it's very awkward. So very unfair. Kristen Stewart's character has to act like a roommate. And, which, and straight. It wasn't, it wasn't even a, a roommate. It was a straight roommate, which is also very unfair. Everything that Mackenzie Davis's Harper does is unfair to Abby Kristen Stewart. It is, I, she should have left her a third of this movie through, and it, it would have been within her right. Well, yeah, because it's not, I mean, she's not likable at all for doing all this. So they come home and then the parents decide to ask the old boyfriend over, which is awkward. That's Jake McDormand. I really feel sorry for him. I wish I wish he would have turned out to be gay. That would have been a nice little twist, but that didn't happen. But her old girlfriend. Ugh, and that ugh, that that's a horrible sub story too. Aubrey it Plaza. Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza is. Actually, you know, instead of just playing, you know, the mopey, quirky girl, Aubrey Plaza is actually playing it kind of straight as a lesbian. Yes. And she's actually very good. And it's just she was very put upon and done wrong. And and why are we supposed to all of a sudden like these people uh, for the last third? The MVP of this movie, though, is Dan Levy yes. from Schitt's Creek, Eugene Levy's son. Yeah, he but he is—he's make... playing the same character. He—he's playing a poorer version of his Shit's Creek character, which I know. But he's so funny that I would pay to watch him in a convenience store, just going through the aisles. That's how funny he is. I and was waiting this... for somebody to come up and go, "Ooh, David," but that didn't happen. No, so he's—he's he's he... John. <laughs> No, he redeems them, and they have they have three daughters. The one they mistreat horribly, and then the one uh, is the golden child, which is Mackenzie Davis. And then there's Allison Bree, who went to Yale, but now is selling gift cards, and she's in a loveless marriage with two annoying bratty children. And they don't make her likable at all the entire film. And you feel sorry for the youngest daughter, Jane, who also uh, she wrote the screenplay. I know. Well, Clea Duvall, the actress, is, well, is uh, uh, she? She made the. She helped write this film and directed this film because she happens to be a lesbian and she wanted to have a Christmas movie for her, her and people that are allies and people like her. And I salute that fact. I just wish it was a better movie. Yeah, it's. I mean, you applaud that, sure, and mainstreaming it, like keeping the, you know, the the family. Like, this is our family. We have lesbian daughter, and it's okay to have her in the Christmas cart. But it's just, the way it's executed is just so, it's cookie-cutter characters, and it's just so generic. It doesn't feel very, uh, uh, it's plastic. It's plastic. Well, the way they treat Mary Holland's Jane the entire movie, and then they, you know, they're, they're I'm, no spoilers here there's a redemption and now she's the golden child that's just dumb it, it, it yes you're supposed to have awkward family situations but families aren't like that they don't they don't the tiger don't change its stripes or zebra sorry zebra don't change its stripes and there's no way that they would all be the turnaround is unearned and not worth it at the end no, everything's tied up neatly in a bow. And Mary's it's a, seen- well, it's a Hallmark movie. If it was a Hallmark movie, they wouldn't kiss until the very end. And 
there wouldn't be but there there's a whole bunch of sex going on and that's why it's on hulu and not disney plus yeah well there is a gay movie that i would like to bring up on amazon right now uncle frank Mm -hmm. and this is authentic and genuine and uh this takes place in the 70s so it was a very closeted time and paul bettany is the lead and he is fantastic this is one of his best performances he has been this great character actor from the da vinci code well beautiful mind which he met his wife jennifer Connolly. beautiful mind and then the Da Vinci Code, and then now he's part of the Marvel Universe. He's Vision. Vision, he's, and he he's was got a new Jarvis. TV series coming out next year. Why right, he, he was Jarvis. So he plays this closeted gay professor in New York who grew up in South Carolina in a small town, and his small town in South Carolina, um, his dad is Stephen Root. Mm-hmm. His mom is Margot Martindale. His brother is Steve Zahn. And fabulous. Judy, Judy, fabulous. Greer, Judy Greer's in it too? Yeah. Um, she plays, she's married to Steve Zahn. Okay. And uh, they're all very macho, uh, conservative. So the young, uh, Uncle Frank's young niece, Betty, who changes her name to Beth, she, uh, she, is very smart, reads, very well read. She loves when Uncle Frank visits because she says he's the only adult that looks her in the eye. <laughs> that That's Sophia Lillis from It, chapters one and two. She played and Beth. She, and she's wonderful. So they flash forward to four years later. She is a freshman at NYU and she gets a she gets to hang out with her uncle in New York and she finds out he's gay and has a partner who is, Oh, what is his name? Um, Peter, Peter MacDissey. Yes. And he is actually the writer and director of this is Alan Ball, which we'll get to, but he is actually the partner of Alan Ball. Yeah. Because Alan, he was on, he was on six feet under. Right. Alan Ball is the creator of six feet under true blood. Sybil. And he wrote the screenplay to American Beauty. Right. And so he took a personal story. He had heard about a story like this, but he grew up in North Carolina. It seems oh. very uh, Sedaris family-like because, you know, they're, they're, that is the David Sedaris. They have, they're in South Carolina and he's gay and there's a whole bunch of conservative eccentrics in the family. Right. It is like that. It's a little bit more serious. It gets a little melodramatic and I am not sure. uh, um, Well, Alan Ball, I I listened to an interview with him and he said he had an inner Tennessee Williams. (laughs) Oh, St. Louis connection. Right. So it's a little, it's, it's, it's not the most perfect plot, but I'm just saying. But you like it better than happiest season. Oh yeah, when I started watching it, I was like, now this is a real movie about gay people that had to live with, well, this was 19, when the film- 1973. Right, when the film starts, it's 1969. And then uh, 1973, what happens is the dad dies, Stephen Root. And so they travel back for his funeral and the partner wants to go, but he's like, oh no, you can't. You no. cannot meet my family. 
we still have to play this charade. And so it's all about them coming to terms with him being gay, but also it's about things that happened in the past that he has to deal with. And so the character- well, yeah, There's a difference of being closeted in 1973 and closeted in 2020, especially right. for somebody that's running for office. That, that You could turn that into an asset in 2020. Right. So I, uh, this is on Amazon and it's uh, original. So if you have Prime, you can watch this for free. And I highly recommend it for the cast and just, uh, just the setting of 1973 and what it was like back then is, is very, 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 very good. Well, let's move over to HBO Max and now the latest Melissa McCarthy, Ben Falcone abortion called Super Intelligence. I'm being very harsh on that. It's not, I don't like it when they work together. I, I don't. Uh, When I saw that, I saw his name in the credits because I tried to avoid knowing anything about this, but I saw his name in the credits and I went, Oh no. He, he, he's, he directed it and he's in it. And um, this movie has sat on a shelf since uh what 2018 it is not funny it's two it is two different stories and you know what the two different stories don't work well together they there's the love story and then there's the uh super intelligence here's the thing um melissa mccarthy as carol is the world's most average person james corden is the voice of an ai an artificial intelligence that the conceit for that is that it was a it was a children's bear that came to life. Now that that's cute. I liked I liked that the children's uh, toy came to life, became sentient, and now wants to either destroy, enslave, or help humanity. Which that's a great premise. And they even and you're like, that sounds like war games. They even mentioned war games. The 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 AI part. And the love story just don't fit together. It's 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 like instead of hand and mitten, it's like putting a shoe on your hand. It gets the job done, but it doesn't it doesn't work. The script is extremely convoluted, and it has good people like Brian Tree Henry. He's from Atlanta. My, he's one and, of my uh, favorite character actors. Bobby and- Bobby Cannavale and uh, Gene Smart is the president of the United States. Sam Richardson. Uh, he plays Ben Falcone's partner in the uh, NSA and James Corden plays himself with, but also the super intelligence, the way that they weaved all those things in was really good. I really wanted to like this movie. And just like I said, with happy land murders, a movie I really wanted to like, and I still found enjoyment out of, there are things I like about this movie, but I just don't know what, the Falcone McCarthy family are doing. I uh, if if you look at the history of the movies that he's involved with, Tammy, yeah, Life of the Party, Ugh, and what's the one about the boss? The boss. <laughs> it's okay. called the boss. But Those but are he, terrible. But, They're all but terrible. now hold on a second. He he also was with he also acted with her in Bridesmaids and acted with her in Spy and Can You Ever Forgive Me, which are you know those are on the other end of that scale. But when he's directing and and has anything to do with the right, 
they're terrible. And so I don't know why they, he got another opportunity. I, I, he should stick to acting and not directing his wife. And, you know, I love them as a couple. They're, they're very sweet and they're very good. They have chemistry. But when he directs her, it's just so weird. And I don't know what it is. And she tries so hard. Like she's lost weight. She commits. She commits. And like I said, I would have liked it if they would have picked one of the two stories. And gone. And I think she and Bobby Cannaval have some a nice little chemistry at times, but I just think this they're not served well by the story. Well, is he a simpleton or is he just like a really nice guy? You'd never get any backstory or depth to one why they broke up, two why the superintelligence wants them to get back together, and three what makes them a lovable couple. I mean, you get little glimpses of that, but it the story on him is not fleshed out enough. And just because the computer says it so doesn't mean that's enough for a plot. And it's really short movie. It is. It's an hour. Is it an hour and 20 minutes? I no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's 106 minutes. So, you know, barely, barely hour 45. All right. Well, Netflix dropped Hillbilly Elegy on Tuesday. And Which it is. You gotten- apologize for. It's got some of the worst reviews of the year. Including yours. Yes. It, Glenn Close fares better than Amy Adams, but it's just this, the book, a friend of mine read it and said, I don't know how they could turn it into a movie, but they turned it into a overcoming adversity movie that by Ron Howard mm-hmm. that has little specialness about it. Well, I read I read the New Yorker or Vulture's review, and they said Amy Adams better not win her Oscar because of this, because, you know, she's been nominated, what, seven times and has never won and has had amazing performances. But they're saying that she could get nominated for this and possibly win because of the year we're having. And they said, please, please do not let her do not let her win on this piece of garbage. Oh no, it's their stereotypes and she's not a good mother. She's a drug addict and she's- uh, The Academy likes that. I know, but it's just so histrionics and uh, it's just, I don't know. When I was watching it, I was like, these are the performances they're supposed to get nominated for. (laughs) It's just because she has been nominated six times without a win and Glenn Close has been nominated seven times without a win. But these are not performances that should win any kind of award. And the boy from St. Louis, Gabriel Basso, is bland and he's the lead. He's the guy that goes to Yale Law School. Yeah, he's, a guy, he's the author of the book. Right. Um, I did not. Uh, let's 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 stop talking about that horrible film. Um, yeah. Belushi's on Showtime now. Uh, Zappa's on Showtime. So Showtime's got some amazing documentaries coming out right now. The, you can see them right now. And the documentary, I know you I know you and Robert talked about the Belushi documentary, but I finally, finally just watch it? finished it because I had started it, but I didn't finish. It's remarkable. The 50... Well, Robert, talk- didn't, Robert didn't like the animation with the talking heads, which I, I, I enjoyed it. I did too. What was, what was special about this was he had 50 people that he interviewed, but it's only audio. It's not talking heads in terms of they're on screen, 
So they he let he keeps the focus on Belushi. He had the love letters between Belushi and his wife Judy. Mm-hmm. He did not spare details except he doesn't talk about the woman who supplied the heroin and cocaine she's not mentioned at all the woman that went to jail for killing him is not mentioned at all in his death i mean but it's a celebration of his life not really about i mean he had his demons they don't really get into what killed him yeah his early life what i liked about how he he carried his reviews around in his pocket Yep. when he was in summer stock and that and then he was very jealous of chevy chase they all hated chevy chase that and bill murray that punched found, him in the face i found that interesting and also because when because of his addiction and it was at a time when hollywood was doing all these drugs and cocaine was huge they didn't treat it like a disease like uh like they needed to and then after Belushi died Belushi was only in the national spotlight for six years think about that think about the six years he had Well, he started in 75 on SNL but he wasn't really a star until Animal House a couple years later right and then it talks about his movies and then he looks so terrible at the I mean it's just sad to see that decline mm-hmm. but after because of Belushi though then with Chris Farley they tried to intervene and also they tried to help Pete Davidson out with his mental health issues but it's a different world now than it was but it's just sad to see how much how much talent Belushi had and this documentary is really thorough and I thought it was very good well that's on Showtime right now um Let's talk about, because we have to let Ann go. I want to ask Ann a question. And here's the question that I've been asking every one of our guests since quarantine began. What film or series or something you saw within the last eight months would you recommend to people for them to see that might they might not have? Or what was your favorite? My favorite is one that is yet to come out. Ah, Mank? The inauguration of Joe Biden. (laughs) I have been, um, I have been doing very little in terms of um, escapist screen watching. I'm a news hound and a history buff. And what I've been reading has been history and food. So I'm not, um, I'm not able to give you anything deeply remarkable. No, that's, hey, that's an honest answer. I appreciate that. Some people would lie. (laughs) Have you been reading all the the many books that have come out like Woodward's Fear and, uh, or no, is it Rage? I have, I have read the Woodward book. Um, I uh, have read Mary Trump's book. I haven't read everything. I read Andrew McCabe's book. Uh, you, you know, I would go broke if I bought all of these books. And Trump book them. of the day. Um, but um, uh, I've, I've enjoyed several of the specials on John Lewis, the documentaries on John Lewis, for example. Oh, that, that's you, really so you good, saw good, good trouble, trouble then? Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you absolutely. recommend that one? Okay, yes, agreed. <laughs> that well, is very good. Well, Lynn, as we wrap it up here, I'm going to tell you something that we did. Local events, um, 
today, after we're finished here, I'm not going to be able to put this up until tomorrow because my family is doing three things. First of all, we last week we went to the Tillis Park drive-through, and then this week we went to Lot of Lights at the Family Arena. Today we're doing Scuba Claws at the St. Louis Aquarium. We're following that up with Tell Santa Your Secrets at Eckert's, and then we're going to Grant's Farm all in a row so we can get it out of our system and I don't have to do it anymore. So, and my wife can get all the pictures and we'll all be in nice outfits and we don't have to dress up seven times. So we can all be in whatever she wants us to wear and we will, and we'll do as she says, all the things. And so I think that's most of what's going on in St. Louis for Christmas-ish. Well, we have a uh, worldwide technology at the Madison Raceway. Oh, over we in Illinois. Big thing. And, I, and uh, the shrine. I forgot about the Illinois things. You've got the shrine too that I've gone right. to many years. Right. The shrine is still free. Mm -hmm. Donations though, but all the indoor stuff's canceled. It's well, just the you, outside stuff. They're the, going to have the animals and the and also. They have the kettle corn. So, so they're not going to have the giant, when you go into the church where they have the, all the Legos, you won't be able to go into that. And will you be able to get out of your car? And a lot of people go get, take their picture by the nativity. Are they letting people out of the cars for that? I don't know. Okay. I will look into that and find out next week. And then Union Station Polar Express is starting, but it is stationary. Right. You're not it's, going anywhere. It's just like what they did for the Halloween. The Halloween thing is cute. That is for mostly little kids. My 17-year-old was, uh, she said, I'm glad we did this for Halloween. Uh, we're not doing it for Christmas. But, you know, we dragged her on. We dragged her out a month and a half ago, and we're dragging her to the aquarium today. So it will be, it, it, is, it is Christmas season for the next month. So we're good. Um, also, the... Uh Metro Theater Company, which concentrates on young audiences, they are doing a virtual reading of A Christmas Carol on December 10th and 13th with an all-star cast. It's going to be Ellie Kemper, oh. Sterling K. Brown, Whoa. his wife, Ryan Michelle Bath. It's going to have John Mazalek and Paul Goldschmidt and all sorts of uh, celebrity St. Louisans are going to take part in this. Ken Page Mm -hmm. It's going to take part in this reading. So if you want to know more, you can get, you have to sign up to get the link, but it's free. So December 10th and 13th, you can get the Metro theater companies. I'm writing this down Metro, not link because that that's something else, but Metro theater. And also um, in Webster, they're doing St. Louis Shakespeare festivals doing like a, a window of a Christmas Carol, aren't they? Yes. That's not Webster. That's it's not Webster. Oh, the West End. Okay. Yes, it's Which, a walk of Christmas windows and an audio that you'll download on your phone, and the details are still coming. Yeah, I did the one in the uh, the Midsummer Night, the late stroll in Forest Park, and it was wonderful. So Shakespeare Festival has pivoted this year to really good works, and if you want to see some of their shake in the um, what is it the shake 38 the little the little tiny snippets of shakespeare yeah, yeah. so go to go to st louis shakespeare festival and there's a world of things you can watch and then you can go to the fox theater live for laura teeters and um our lara teeter and uh, larry pry they're putting on a dickens of a tour at the fox 
Yeah, the Dickens walking tour at the Fox. And once again, Anne, thank you very much. It's in the Central West End in St. Louis, not yes, Webster. I knew, I, I knew there was a W in it somewhere. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Anne, thank you for being our guest today. Go shop local. Go to uh, Left Bank Books or another local bookstore and go get Anne's new book. It's called... She, oh, yeah. Okay called iconic uh, restaurants of St. Louis. She oh, look, there's a, there's the one sheet. arrived while we were doing this. Really? Nice. Oh, wow. She um serendipitous. She, she includes the sticky toffee pudding recipe from Shafley's tap room. So if you want to make a really good dessert for the holiday there, season. Then which there is no better. Well, it's interesting. Unfortunately due to the pandemic, Schlafly couldn't turn 21 with all of us this year. And so you know, I'm sure that Tom had a whole thing for the brewery turning 21. And once again, pandemic, Strikes best laid plans. Thank you so much, Ann. And thank you. You've made me so hungry for lunch. I got to just. Always, always happy to talk food with or without <laughs> a book involved. <laughs> And thank you. And Carl, you have fun at all those Christmas things. Uh, yeah, it'll be great. Everyone have a nice beginning of your holiday season because yes, Christmas season can officially start now that Thanksgiving has ended. Welcome. Yeah, and, and we'll have we'll have quite a few of the big hot titles of the year for next week. Next week we should have Mank as we get to see it. And then uh, Malari, is that coming out next week too? No, that's December 11th. And the prom... Oh. Produced locally will be December 11th. And also December 11th, Wander Darkly, a movie I guess the ending five minutes into. <laughs> Enjoy the holiday season, everybody. Stay safe, wear your mask, and support local. Bye-bye. Bye.